Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening, and thank you for uh, the privilege we have of studying the Word of God and then uh, having it in our own language and so readily available to us. What a great privilege this is. Even there are other places in the world, many places where folks do not have easy access to your Word, and so we're thankful that we do and that uh, we can know uh, your plan, your will. So uh, help us not to uh, take this lightly, but to be appreciative appreciative of, it, of what you've given us. And help us, uh, Lord, to grow in that as we see how you have uh, produced your word, inspired your word, preserved it down to our age, and made it available to us in the various translations in our own language. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So I forgot to tell you last week, but this class has a quiz. All right. So uh, let's look at the quiz. Number one, uh, the Greek word inspiro means, well, that's really kind of bad, isn't it? It's supposed to say means to breathe out. The Greek word inspiro means to breathe out. False. False. So that Greek, the, the it's not a Greek word. That's a Latin word, inspiro. And inspiro meant to breathe in. We were saying how that uh, one of the great scholars on this subject, a Presbyterian by the name of B.B. Warfield, wrote a famous book about the inspiration and authority of scriptures. He was, he's famous for complaining about the translator of the Vulgate, the Latin translation, he should have used expiro to breathe out because that's what the Greek word means. Number two, the doctrine of inspiration deals with God's dictation of his word to the biblical writers. False. Today, we don't usually use the word dictation. Uh, you know, a dictation is what someone does and a stenographer just writes it down word for word. Uh, that's not what happened here. When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he was writing a letter. He was thinking God wasn't dictating it to him per se. There's a confluence of the human and divine in a way that we don't fully understand. We like the word superintending, something like that better, because... The Bible doesn't show the marks of dictation. If it did, then you know all the books would be similar in language and style. And so, as I said last time, anyone who reads, say, the Greek New Testament can see that Paul's style and writing is different from John. First John's a lot different than Romans. It's just you can tell there's a different writer writing. Now, it's still God has superintended, so it's the Word of God. It's inspired, it's without error, but it's not technically dictation in the sense of, you know, a lawyer dictating to his secretary and saying, take this down, and, you know, word for word, kind of thing like that. So it's not, it's not that exact thing of dictation in that sense. So we don't usually use the word dictation to describe this process. We use something like God was controlling, superintending, uh, the writers of Scripture. Uh, 
Uh, three, inspiration ultimately applies only to the autographs. Come in. Made it through that train, huh? I was actually in green. Oh, okay. Well, I guess the train people have still... It's been, the train's been blocked for 45 minutes here. Oh, they're finally moving on both ways. Then. Okay. So inspiration ultimately applies only to the autographs. The word ultimately there is the key word. Ultimately. I mean, in the sense of without error, God breathe. It's when, when Paul wrote the Romans... God was superintending. That's what was God-breathed. That's what was inspired and so forth. So when people made copies of that, God didn't make sure that those copies were without error. They could have made spelling errors. They could have missed words. They could have jumped a line here. They could make, you know, just human errors uh, in the copying process. And the translators, there's nothing about translators that makes them inspired. So uh, so it's the original documents. And that's why, you know, we, we, the ideal is when you're studying for the ministry, you're, you try, if you can, if you can, to study the original languages so you can, you know, have a sense of what the original documents were like and so forth. And that's our ultimate authority we appeal to. We don't say, well, the King James says this and the ESV says this. Which one's right? Well... Neither one necessarily is right. It's what the original Greek or Hebrew uh, says. That's what's inspired and without error. Ancient books were both scrolls and codices. I just used that word codex once. This is a codex. So three of these would be codices. So they used the word biblos, or book, first for scrolls, because the first books we know about are scrolls. The first things that were written books were scrolls or rolls. And sometime around the year 100, maybe earlier, maybe a little earlier, this was invented. This kind of codex was invented. And Christians adopted it just like that for their scriptures. Uh, five, the Tanakh has slightly different material than our Protestant Bibles. What's the Tanakh? The Jewish Bible. So that's the way Jews refer to the Old Testament, don't they? They call it the Tanakh. Come in. They call it the Tanakh. And what is the Tanakh? How did they get that name, Tanakh? Taking little parts of each of the words. Right. T-N-K. T for Torah, N for Nevaim, and K for Ketuvim. So the law the prophets and the writings. So they just make an acronym out of that. That's Tanakh. So does it contain different material than our Protestant Bibles? <laughs> That's true. You're right. You got me on that. I should have said than our Old Testament, than our Protestant Old Testament. But I mean, uh, in the Old Testament portion, it's a good point. Uh, in the Old Testament portion, is it different material or not? No, it's not different material. Now, it's arranged differently, and the number of books are different. It's not 39, is it? Because they combine some of the books. And the Tanakh, the 12 prophets, is one book. So they lose 12, they lose 11 books right there. You know, you go from 39 
right down to 28 immediately because if you you only have one what they call one book the minor prophets and they don't separate chronicles or kings uh, or Samuel those are all one book so it's the same material and it's arranged differently than our book remember the last book in the Old Testament the Tanakh is second chronicles where ours is Malachi so they arrange it differently but it's the same material Canonicity explains how the Bible received its authority. Canonicity explains how the Bible received its authority. Different than your definition. Yes. I said, Canonicity explains how the Bible was recognized as the Bible. Inspiration explains how it got its authority. So, the Bible is, is, is authoritative because it's inspired. Canonicity deals with the recognition of what was inspired. So the canon, canonicity, the process of recognizing those books, did not make them authoritative. They, Romans was authoritative when Paul wrote it. And Malachi was authoritative when Malachi wrote it. But then these books were collected... That's canonicity, arranged, put in groupings and so forth, and produced the canon, the collection. So canonicity has to do with the collection of the God-inspired books. Okay, we are looking at uh, page 6 in our notes, and we're talking about the books that were rejected from inclusion in the Bible. Now, Maybe I should have been more specific here. I'm talking about Old Testament, books associated with the Old Testament. So there's a lot more books than just these that the New Testament, say, church, did not put in the Bible. There's all kinds of books written in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century that didn't get in the Bible. I'm talking here about books that eventually did get in the Bible, in the Catholic Bible. They're called the the Old Testament Apocrypha. The reason they're called the Old Testament Apocrypha is because they were written by Jews for Jews and they have to do with the Old Testament characters and events. So these Apocrypha books have nothing to do with the New Testament. They were written before the New Testament primarily. And so they don't really have anything to do with the New Testament. They're all concerned with Old Testament characters and events written by Jews. I say it refers to a group of 15 books, sometimes 14 books, depending on how you arrange them, uh, related to the canonical Old Testament books. So they're they're somehow related, as we'll see. But were judged by the early church to not be inspired and thus rejected. Now, they were also rejected by Jews, as we'll see. That's one of the reasons I'm going to give you in a moment. So these were written by Jews for Jews, but they're not part of the Tanakh. The Jews don't recognize them as scripture, even though Jews wrote them. They were, uh, in 1546, accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. But here's the listing of them uh, in the in the book. So, first, Esdras. What's that? Esdras is the Greek way to say Ezra. First Ezra and second Ezra. So you see it's after the prophet Ezra and so forth. And many of these books contain material that's already in the Old Testament canon. They contain portions of Ezra and so forth. 
there's Tobit and Judith, additions to Esther, wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. See, Ecclesiasticus, that's one name for it. It's also called Sirach, Ben Sirach. It's, uh, the Jews wouldn't use the term Ecclesiasticus. That's what the church called this book, the wisdom of Jesus, son of Joshua, son of Barak, of Sirach. Sirach. So, yeah, Baruch, who is the, the uh, scribe for Jeremiah, letters of Jeremiah, Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragman, and so forth. Uh, I'll talk about some of these books in just a moment here, but notice in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church said 12 of these are canonical. Now, they did this in reaction, it's pretty clear, to the Protestant Reformation, because these books contain some teachings that uh, are helpful to Catholic doctrine. The, the Protestant Reformation rejected salvation by works. The Catholic Church believes in justification by faith plus works. The Protestants said, no, it's justification by faith alone. And uh, Catholics say, no, it's faith plus works. And anybody who says it's faith alone, anathema. May they spend eternity in hell, is what they say in the Council Trent. And they pray for the dead. They have purgatory, pray for the dead. So these books have some teachings which were helpful and are helpful to Catholic doctrine. So Catholics adopted them, some of these, in 1546. Now notice the dates of the Apocrypha. They're written primarily about 250 B.C. to 50 B.C. So in between the Testaments, written by Jews. You know, Malachi, we're about 400, wrote 400, and then the New Testament starts around... 8050. So we're in between the testaments here for the most part. Now, we shouldn't think of these books as evil or bad. They're not evil or bad, they're just not inspired. You know. And uh, people have found a lot of useful things in over the years. I mean, in the ancient world you couldn't go to a bookstore or go to Amazon and see all these Christian books, thousands of them, and there's just so much tons of literature out there, you know. It's just multiplied. Even in my lifetime, the amount of literature that's available is unbelievable. I mean, when I was in seminary, I used to pride myself on being able to keep up on every book in my field of New Testament. I knew every book that came out. I knew all about these books. There just weren't that many in 1970s. But now there's just so many. I, I don't even know what they all are. They're just impossible to keep up with. So we've had an explosion of evangelical writing, books on everything, every subject. It's just it's very helpful. These are they have many quality things. Well, in the ancient world, there weren't that much. And these were things that Jews wrote of interest to Jews to help them, to encourage them. And they basically adopted Jewish theology, which Jewish theology is what Jesus encountered in the Gospels. Salvation by works. The Pharisees, they're thinking that they're going to be saved by their good works. That's what Judaism is today. Judaism today is a religion of works, good works. So these incorporate those ideas. So you have the same, you have various types of literature, genres, like we do in the Old Testament, like historical books. First and Second Maccabees. Now what's that about? Well, there was uh, the Jews, um, 
the Jews uh, came under the control of the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. And roughly 300, you know, a little Alexander the Great conquers the then known world. And after his death, his empire is divided into mainly four parts. And the Jews come under the control of these Greeks, these Greek empires. And they eventually revolted in uh, 167, the second century BC. They revolted. This was led by a family, a group called the Maccabees. If you go around Detroit, you'll see buildings named with Maccabees on them. Uh, it's a Jewish uh, name and so forth. And so they revolted in, uh, in the second century and eventually set up a Jewish state that lasted, uh, you know, right up until the Romans conquered. When uh, uh, the Romans came through and conquered in the first century B.C. So it lasted about 100 years, and the Romans took over, and eventually we get Herod the Great, everything that follows after that. So there's the, the reason we know a lot about that period of that revolt is this book, First Maccabees. It's a historical book, and it's thought to be pretty reliable history. So it's interesting reading. You can read about the times and so forth. So it's a helpful book in that sense. There's wisdom or didactic literature, wisdom of Solomon. This is like, you know, Proverbs. It's it's wisdom literature, Ecclesiasticus, religious romance. That's something like, sort of like the book of Ruth. You know, Ruth has got a little romance in it, and so this has got the same kind of thing in it. Apocalyptic like Revelation, prophetic like the prophets, and a lot of legendary additions to the Old Testament like additions to Esther and additions to Daniel. So, let's look at that. Additions to Esther. The Hebrew text has 167 verses. That is the authoritative, inspired text. The Apocrypha adds 107 verses. So some Jews had a problem with the book of Esther because the book of Esther never mentions the name of God. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. Now, God's there <laughs> providentially, obviously, guiding and directing things, but he's not mentioned. Mordecai never says God, and Esther never says God, and nothing. There's nothing like that. They're following the law, they're trying to observe the law, but there's no mention of the name of God in, in those things. So, uh, Jews came along and added to the book. They added uh, in the new NRS, the NRSV translation. I have the uh, new Revised Standard version. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is a translation that is convenient because it has the Apocrypha in it and a good translation, so I've got it here with me. But it adds, uh, you know, uh, 107 verses. <laughs> and these verses uh, add the word God or Lord. So it makes it, you know... <laughs> more like the Old Testament and so forth. So some Jews had a problem with this idea. And Esther is an interesting book. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. John Whitcomb, he wrote a book on Ezra. And his theory is that Mordecai, neither Mordecai or Esther were really saved. Did you get that? <laughs> He says, he claims that what we're seeing in there is God's 
providential care for the Jews, even when they were in unbelief. And what's Esther doing going into this harem? And it's a lot, there's some problems. Anyway, that's his view. But the truth is, there's another <coughs> version of God. So what do they do? So here's Esther 2.20. Now, Esther had not revealed her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And the, the addition in the Apocrypha says, Esther had not disclosed her country, such were the instructions of Mordecai, but she was to fear God and keep his laws. Well, that's not in the original text of that. Here's Esther 4.11. The actual Hebrew text says, So Mordecai went away and did what Esther told him to do. But look what's been added in the Apocrypha. <laughs> then Mordecai prayed to the Lord, calling to the remembrance the works of the Lord. He said, Oh Lord, Lord, you king, and Lord. There's just it's all filled through there with Lord, 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 Lord. <laughs> you know. So they're making Mordecai out to be a great spiritual saint here in the Apocrypha and so forth. So uh, that's additions to Esther um, that were added in to make the book longer and so forth. Um, I mentioned Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus is not quite the same as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is uh, thought to be, uh, some, some say it's related to the name of the writer in Hebrew, Koheleth, and, and this is kind of a Latin equivalent of that. Ecclesiasticus is related. It, it sometimes it means the church book uh, because it was thought to be okay to be read in church. It wasn't inspired, but you could read it and so forth like that. Or Sirach, it's sometimes called, S-I-R period. Sometimes you'll see S-I-R period. That's Sirach. It's the wisdom of Je, uh, Joshua, or in English translate Jesus, son of Sirach. But it's 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 okay. I mean, it's 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 got it's got a lot of things that are not quite right in it. But it's it's not a wicked book. It's not telling people to do wicked things. I mean, it's like uh, he who keeps the law makes many offerings. He who heeds the commandments sacrifices peace. All he returns with kindness. Let me skip down here. Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed, for all these things are to be done before, because of the commandment, the offerings of a righteous man, anoint the altar, his pleasing odor. You know, these are based upon the law mostly, and are just instructions, a lot like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth like that. So these are not, uh, this is not a wicked, these are not wicked materials, they're just not inspired materials. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting stuff here. I mentioned last time I'd say something about, I'll say something about Susanna here because uh, the pastor here has a daughter who's named after her, but he didn't know that until I, I told him here. But anyway, Susanna is an interesting book. It's only two pages in the Apocrypha. It's one page, two pages. It's called The World's First Detective Story. The World's First Detective Story. And um, so in this story, there's this woman named Susanna, and she's married to this man named Hilkiah. She's a very beautiful woman, one of the most beautiful Jewish women in Babylon. And so uh, 
Hilkiah is a, a wealthy man. Her parents are very wealthy. They had trained her daughter in the law. She's a very pure, righteous, holy woman, kept the law and all that. And she marries this man named uh, Joachim and so forth. And so um, so Joachim, he, he would often have people over to his house, Jews over to his house, and they would discuss matters and they were, uh, Joachim was considered a judge. They would judge among the people. So uh, uh, these two Jewish leaders, come up, they come over to Joachim's house quite often. And they are just enraptured with Susanna's beauty. They just, they, they want to have her sexually, to be honest about it. And this is what they're talking about. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to do this. And they, t- they approach her and say, listen, if you don't lay with us, then you're going to be in trouble. We are going to say, we're going to say, here's what we're going to, we're going to say that we saw you with another young man in the garden. They have this beautiful garden. They say, if you don't lay with us, we're going to, we're going to make up this story and say, we saw you with a young man. And so she's in a quandary. What in the world do I do here, you know? <laughs> because if I, if I say, if I say yes, to these young these men, I'll be breaking the law. I'll be dishonoring God and my husband. But if I say no, I'm not going to go along with these men. Then they're going to accuse me and have me stoned. So what is she going to? Is she going to be stoned, or is she going to sin with these men? And so she decides she will not break God's law. She will not go along with these men. And so, sure enough, these men come. There, some people are at the house, and they say, "Listen, we saw Susanna in the garden with this young man. You know, we saw them together." And uh, they say, "Oh, oh, this is awful!" And, this, and they, so they're going to have, have a little trial, and they condemn Su, Su, Susanna and say, "You know, she's got to be stoned and all this kind of thing." So right before this is going to take place, this young man suddenly appears. And he says, wait, wait just a minute on that little deal here. Let me talk to these two elders. And he does what modern detectives commonly do. You take the two witnesses and you separate them. Put one in one room, one in the other room, and you see if their stories jive. So he he talks to one of them and says, what happened? Oh, I, I saw her. I saw them. And they were over under this mastic tree, some translations say. He gets the other one and says, no, they were under the evergreen tree. So he proves that their stories don't match. <clears throat> Susanna is vindicated. These elders are stoned. And at the end of the story, we find out who this young man is. <clears throat> Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> so a number of these uh, books in the Apocrypha, like Bell of the Dragon and all these others, some of these others, are designed to talk about the, the, these young, these um, a guy like Daniel. How did Daniel get to be so elevated in the kingdom, and how did he become so famous? Well, here's how: these incidents. You've got the same thing in the New Testament because writers later on, the second, third, fourth century, they decided to write stories about Jesus when he was young because we don't have anything about that. So we're going to write stories, you know, and they did. They wrote all kinds of stories about Jesus. His birth and his growing up and what he did. One day Jesus was in the carpenter shop with his father 
and he chiseled out this little wooden bird, and then all of a sudden he made it fly. It flew, <laughs> flew away like that, you know. So you've got that kind of stuff. So it's interesting stuff. It's not wicked, necessarily bad stuff. But let's look at reasons why it's not in the Protestant canon. Number one, the New Testament never quotes, never directly quotes, or refers to any of the apocryphal books as authoritative or canonical. So it doesn't say, thus says the Lord, and then quote one of these books. Two, no council of the entire church during the fourth four centuries favored them. Many church fathers, as Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Origen, and Jerome vehemently opposed them. Now, the truth is, some people did think highly of them. Some people in the early church we know thought, now these are pretty good books. You know, maybe they should be read in the church, and maybe they should be studied, and maybe they have value. And they were valued by many people in the church throughout the centuries. So it's not like you know, the church that said these are wicked, terrible, but, but basically they didn't make them canonical. They, they didn't become in, in the canonical books. Okay. Yes? Just a question. Since since we say the, the Tanakh, uh, Jesus says from this to this, and therefore we say this is the validity to it. Now, these books, the apocryphal books, would have been written prior to yes. him saying that. Yes. And the people that created that, would their order have been in between those two? And would that give them a minor argument to say, see, he said it. Like the editions of Esther. Couldn't the, couldn't yeah. the editions of yeah. Esther have been yeah. in Because we got a book of Esther. Yeah. Like the people who, the yeah. Jewish group that yeah. said, we need, this is, this is yeah. how we see it. Well, no, we don't have any... We don't have any history of Jews accepting these. That's that's going to be point number six at the bottom. That's kind of like the final little thing. So the truth is, the Jews did never did. So you know, it's 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 there's just no evidence. The only people who ever accepted them as authoritative uh, are scripture are some Christians. That is the Roman Catholic Church and Greek Orthodox too. <coughs> So three, some of the books contain unbiblical and heretical teachings, such as prayers for the dead and salvation by works. There's some question about 2 Maccabees 12, 44, 45, but it is used by Roman Catholics to support praying for the dead. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so they might be delivered from their sin. So it's possible to redeem people after they're dead. And the, you know, according to this verse, and the Roman Catholic Church points to this. B, good works. Good works, fasting, and one's own death can atone for sins. In Sirach, that is wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, those who honor their father atone for sin. There's a lot of there's a number of verses like that. Those who those who honor their father atone for sin. So you can have atonement not just by sacrifices, but by good works. Is is this I'd always just assume things like indulgences were an invention, like a papal declaration of some kind. Do they root those kind yes. of things back into? The they root this all the way back to good works because good works creep in very. That they're re, they're rooted in good works and they're rooted in things like this. So uh, 
in the Roman Catholic Church tradition works very quickly by 600. Certainly, you know, you, you get this kind of thing. So there was this tradition in Judaism too. Judaism has always held this kind of thing. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've heard, I haven't studied Mormonism very clearly, but I've heard this is some of their basis for, uh, you can atone for your sins by execution, stuff like that. Four, some of the teachings fall short of biblical standards and are at times even immoral. Judith is assisted by God in a deed of falsehood. There's some problematic things like that. Many of the books contain historical and chronological errors. Judah speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as reigning in Nineveh instead of Babylon. It's hard to know what to think about these kinds of historical errors that are in the books, like the book of Judah. Judith is a book sometimes called religious romance. Um, and uh, it's difficult to know what to make of this because many people call this book a kind of a, a fictional novel. They call it uh, allegorical, parabolic, because it has some so many of these kinds of sort of obvious errors. It's like, you know, in those days, people, you know, the Jews knew what the capital of Babylon was. They had been taken into captivity, you know, that Nebuchadnezzar was in Babylon. I mean, that was part of their history. They knew that pretty clearly. It was a far as we know a well-known fact not 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 uh not Nineveh the Assyrian capital so it's so they were taking the capital of Babylon they know about Babylon they know about Nebuchadnezzar so why would they make a mistake like that a lot of people think it's on purpose because this is just historical fiction you know in other words it's like it's like today if somebody you know said uh the capital of the United States is in Minneapolis it's quite an error, you know. I mean, it's just pretty obvious. That's that's how this appears, at least from what we understand. So it seems it seems almost obvious, like somebody was just writing fiction here. It's hard to say. There's a number of these like this that are very strange. But number six, there's the capstone. So Jews never accepted them. They haven't. They never did. They never have accepted any of the scripture. They they wrote them. And they didn't add them to their Bibles, to the Tanakh. There's no indication of that. Number seven, the Apocrypha were only accepted in 1546 by the Roman Catholic Church. I think probably mainly as a reaction against the Protestant Reformation. All right. Let's talk about number seven here. In what language was the Bible originally written? Obviously not English. The Old Testament was written in two languages, most of it in Hebrew. Hebrew language. Now, Hebrew is the language that developed, we think, from the Canaanite language spoken in Palestine for about 2000 BC onward. So, languages developed. Okay, we know we got the Tower of Babylon, and there was a diffusion of languages there, but that's not all the languages in the world. English, there was a time when there was no English language. There was no English language at the time of Christ or the first two or three hundred years. There was a time when there was no uh, French language or no Spanish language. There's a lot of languages that have developed over time. And so, um, you know, uh, scholars try to figure out, you know, the development of languages, and they can do that by studying them. And here's a chart that kind of shows that. 
So the languages of the New Testament, the uh, the language of the New Testament, Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, Hebrew and Aramaic are called Semitic languages. So languages are put into various families. Like we're English is is what family is that? English, what family is that? Indo-European. You ever heard of that term? Indo-European. So we're 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 in a family of languages that are similar. German, French, Spanish, Italian. We're, we're, we're related. We're all related. You can see related things. That's not true of Hebrew. So students in his seminary, we teach Greek first because Greek has a lot of similarity to English. But when you get to Hebrew, there ain't no similarities. <laughs> there's not a signal cognate word. You know, there's no... There's no, there's no word that's similar to sound that means the same thing. It's just all rote memorization. It's, it's, so it's more difficult in that sense. It's just a different language. And it, it works differently. It's, the syntax is different. Everything about it is just Semitic languages are just different. So they, they think there was probably an original Semitic, maybe the Tyre Babylon, you know, whatever, whatever. And then it developed East Semitic, West Semitic. Down at the bottom, you'll see Canaanite on the left. And you get from that Phoenician... Phoenician and Hebrew are related because the Hebrews used the Phoenician alphabet. The first alphabet probably invented by the Phoenicians, maybe. And the Greeks picked up on that alphabet, too, and used it. And the Aramaic language we'll talk about. So if you look at a a map of, like, Palestine, you will see, I don't know if you can see that, but um, there is Hebrew here and Canaanite, Phoenician, Moabite. These are all uh, Arabic these are all Semitic languages. They're related. Sim, the word Semitic comes from Shem. Shem was one of Noah's sons, Shem. But in Greek, you can't have an H in the middle of the word in Greek. You can't say S-H-E-M. You can only have an H at the beginning of a word in Greek. So what do they do if they take a word that's spelled S-H-E-M and put it in Greek? They just leave the H out. It becomes S-E-M. So that's how you get Semitic. So it's just uh, it's named after uh, one of Noah's sons, uh, Shem, and Semitic languages. So um, 99% of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Why Hebrew? It was the language spoken by Israel. So God is giving his word to the Israelites. He's going to give it in the language that they spoke. Now, there's also a portion in a language called Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew. So uh, when I was in seminary, I took Hebrew. And after I took Hebrew, then I took Aramaic because Aramaic was quite similar. If you knew Hebrew... Aramaic was easier to pick up. It didn't. It wasn't. It, it's related very closely. It uses the same characters, many of the same characteristics, and the vocabulary is somewhat similar. Um, it was the. It takes its name from the Arameans or the people of Aram. This is the land of Abraham's ancestors, called Mesopotamia by the Greeks. So, Genesis twenty four ten. This is Abraham. Abraham comes from the land of Aram. He comes from the, the Mesopotamia he himself. And he comes to Canaan, but he wants to get a bride for his son Isaac. And he says, I'm not going to take, I don't want a bride here 
among the Canaanites. I'm going to go send back, send my servant back to where I came from and get a bride from my own people. And uh, so then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, that's Abraham's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim. That is, that means Aram of the two rivers. The two rivers are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And made his way to the town of Nahor. That's the NIV. The New American Standard translates that Aram Naharim is the Hebrew. That's just the transliteration of the Hebrew, Aram Naharim. The New American Standard just says Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a Greek word for the middle of the river. So we're talking about this area right here. You're talking about the Tigris and Euphrates. And so Abraham is somewhere up here. There's a question of whether he's... It says Ur there. Uh, there's actually a couple of theories about Abraham. Uh, when I, where I went to seminary, when I went to the Grace Seminary, they were very strong on what they called Northern Ur. There is a city up in north called Northern Ur, and it it may be that 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 is where Abraham is from. But anyway, he's from this area in Mesopotamia, and so he sends his servant back to get a bride for his son from among his people. So uh, it was the language, as I say here. The universal language of the ancient world from the 8th century till the 4th century. Jews picked it up while in captivity. (coughs) So, you know, it it was kind of a universal language. The Jews spoke Hebrew, but when they went into captivity, they picked up this Aramaic language because that was the language being spoken, the universal language. And this lasted from about the 8th century to the 4th century. Uh, so some of the New Te- uh, Old Testament is written in this Aramaic. 268 verses, mainly in Daniel, were written in Aramaic. Daniel was in captivity. It was still spoken by the Jews in the days of Jesus. So uh, Aramaic continued to be spoken to some degree by Jews. And it may have been the main language. There's some debate about what languages were exactly spoken by Jesus and his disciples. Most people think that it was mainly this Aramaic. Uh, Hebrew was, of course, read in the synagogue and so forth. Greek was spoken, we know, in, in that area also. So, um, But it was still spoken. It's still around today. There's some conclaves of Aramaic that's sort of dying out. What about the New Testament? So the Old Testament is written in old, mainly Hebrew, but some Aramaic, a related language, a Semitic language. Uh, the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek. Now, so Greek is an Indo-European language. So these languages are related, they have characteristics, and they put them in a family called Indo-European. So English is in that Germanic strain there, according to that chart. And Greek went through various stages. You think about classical Greek up to about 300 B.C., and then there's what we call Koine Greek. Koine Greek. Koine Greek developed about 300 B.C. to about 300 A.D. It was, it's Koine means common or everyday Greek. So in classical Greek, there were different dialects, Attic, Ionic, uh, various dialects of Greek in the various city-states. They were all close. They could communicate, but they were somewhat different. And then in the New Testament period, you get 
down to one really dialect, Koine or Common Greek. Over time, Greek develops. Byzantine Greek from 300 to about 1453, and now modern Greek. So modern Greek is different from uh, the Greek of the Bible. A person who knows modern Greek cannot necessarily really understand the Bible. There's all kinds of words in, in there and all kinds of constructions that are not in modern Greek. All kinds of tense changes, uh, various kinds of forms that are not really in modern Greek. So modern Greek has developed. So uh, why Greek? It was the universal language of the ancient world the days of Jesus and the apostles. So we said Aramaic was the universal language from 800 B.C. to 400 B.C., but then something happened. A man named Alexander the Great conquered the known world around 330, and he spread Greek language and culture all through this area, all the way to India, Egypt. And so he spread the Greek language everywhere. So at the time of Jesus, the common universal language, now Jews still spoke their own language, and all these other people spoke their own little native languages, but there was a kind of a universal trade language, uh, lingua franca, that was Greek. And so this was the sort of universal language. So Paul had a great advantage. He could write his letters. When he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, he didn't write it in Latin. He wrote it in Greek because people in Rome spoke Greek and they understood Greek, even though we're talking about Latin. Now, that didn't last forever, as we'll see. That changed, but Greek was the dominant language. Cicero complained that there's more Greek spoken on the streets of Rome than Latin. So Greek was just a universal, and that's why the New Testament, as I say, the universality of Greek was a result of Alexander's conquest. All right, let's look at Roman numeral 8. How was uh, God's word written? <clears throat> well, uh, Hebrew alphabet. Let's talk about the Hebrew alphabet here. Uh, Hebrew was originally written in what's called Phoenician or Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo means Old Hebrew script. So the first alphabet was the Phoenician alphabet, apparently. That was adopted by various Semitic language groups like the Jews for Hebrew. The Greeks adopted it too, and they changed it somewhat, but it's still the same pretty much alphabet. Uh, about the 5th century B.C., Aramaic, the Aramaic or square script was adopted below uh, this Siloam scription around 700 B.C. So what I'm showing there is an inscription, and uh, the top part is the Paleo-Hebrew, the old script. Now this is an inscription that's found in Jerusalem. I'll talk about the inscription in just a moment. But this inscription goes back to around 700 B.C. And in 700 B.C., Hebrew was written using those characters at the top, that Paleo-Hebrew. And then, around the 5th century, the Jews switched to a different alphabet. Same meaning, just a different way to form the letters. I mean, we have A, B, C, D, but... It, there, there's no rule that says, you know, A has to be that. We could all say, okay, we're going to change 
And now we're going to say that's A. If we wanted to. <laughs> There's no rule that says that particular way of forming A has to be A. We could change what A looks like if we want to. We have to educate everybody and say, there's an A now. But So that's what the Jews did. They adopted a more common script called the Aramaic or square script, and that's what's in your Hebrew Bible today. And you can see that at the bottom. So that Paleo-Hebrew that I'm showing you is actually from a stone inscription called the Siloam inscription. The Siloam description was discovered in 1880 on the rock facing, I say, near the opening of the tunnel leading from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. It records the completion of the tunnel by Hezekiah in 725. So when Israel is being invaded, Jews are being invaded, Hezekiah has this tunnel dug. He has a tunnel dug from the Gihon Spring here. This is outside of Jerusalem here, outside the walls, which is the natural spring for water. I know you can't see the spring right there, but believe me, there's a spring there. <laughs> and it uh, it provides water for Jerusalem. It's a natural occurring spring, artesian kind of spring and so forth, clean water. And so the walls uh, at that time came right down here, right up here, like that. And so uh, he had a tunnel dug from the spring down into Jerusalem to a pool there called the Pool of Siloam. And uh, that way, the uh, enemy couldn't uh, starve, you know, couldn't couldn't deprive them of water. They'd have water going through the tunnel. And they dug this tunnel, started, they both, they started on both ends. One started in on the Gihon Spring end, and one started in Jerusalem. I mean, in, in uh, down where the Pool of Siloam is. And uh, there's a tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel. You can go through that. If you go to Jerusalem, you can. Now, most tours don't. When when I went there in 2000, we walked through that. My wife and I, Pansy, walked through that tunnel with bu- a bunch of others. And the water is, as you expect, cold, but this was hot summertime, so we didn't mind it. But the water comes up at some place, you know, about halfway up your knee, but sometimes it comes all the way up to your thigh. So you have to take some old clothes, some old shoes, and walk through there. And it's around 1,700 foot along. Um, and we walk through from the Gihon Spring side to the other side. But in the middle, they found an inscription called the Siloam Inscription. And that's what that's what you're seeing on your page there, on page 9, is that inscription. Um, there's where it was located, and there it is. There's the actual Siloam inscription. Um, it's uh, they, they actually took that piece of rock out, and it's now in Istanbul in the museum there. Because at the time this was discovered, the Ottoman Empire was in control in, in Istanbul, and they took that out, and uh, they took it back to the museum. It's hard to see there, but it's in it's in this Paleo Hebrew script, like I'm showing you right there. The discover the the tunnel was discovered in 1838, 1838, but it wasn't until 1880 that the inscription was found, and the inscription tells about how they cut this tunnel 
working from one side of the, which was quite a quite an, a feat, you know. I mean, without modern instruments, they dug this tunnel and, and were able to hit each other in the middle, which is kind of amazing, like that. Um, so the uh, the tunnel was found. The, the inscription was found in 1880 by a boy who was a young boy who was swimming in there, kind of. His name was uh, uh, Jacob Elihu. Uh, he was a Arab boy there who was there, and uh, he uh, he was adopted later, and his name was changed to the name of his family, Jacob Spafford. Jacob Spafford. Does that name Spafford uh, ring any bells? Horatio Spafford. What's that? The songwriter. You know, it is well with my soul. So, uh, so Horatio Spafford, you know, he, uh, remember his wife and his daughters were on a trip to Britain. The ship went down, you remember, and she was saved. And uh, his daughters died, you know, in the, in the sea. And uh, so later he and his wife moved to Jerusalem. A lot of, uh, a lot of, British and Americans did and set up colonies there. Some of them are still there today. Uh, I stated one when I was there. It was a uh, Finnish colony out of South Jerusalem. But they adopted this boy. <laughs> and they changed, of course, he changed his name to Spaff- Jacob Spafford. So this is, uh, this is Paleo Hebrew. And uh, we can see here. Uh, Kind of what it looks like here with the, the letters. On the left is the Old Phoenician, Old Hebrew. That's the Paleo Hebrew. On the right is the Aramaic square script. Now the Greeks, they took that script and they took those letters and produced their own alphabet. So if you look down at uh, if you look down at 21 there, you'd see the Hebrew letter consists of 20, alphabet consists of 22 letters, all consonants. You can see it's the it's the Aramaic square form, Aleph, Beth, Gimel. Well, that's the first three letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha, Beta, Gamma. The third letter of the Greek alphabet and the third letter of the Hebrew are a G. Now, the Romans switched things around. They put a C in there. A, B, C. The next one is Daleth, or then Delta. We'll see. So uh, it's really the same alphabet, uh, just uh, written differently. Yes, sir. Just, uh, it might be off topic if it's okay. Um, I'm noticing at the top one, things are really triangular. Did the, did the adoption of this different alphabet coincide with... Uh, it becoming more practical to write with an ink on something versus carving it out of a material like a wood or a rock or something. No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, this it, you're you're right in a sense that uh, there there this is a rock carving. This is one of the oldest, but there are there are manuscripts that have the Paleo Hebrew. So this is a more uh, refined script, and this would require ink. And you know, you're right. It would be hard to carve. The Aramaic square script. That, more subtle shapes. Yeah, it, you would have to have writing on that, you know, like that. It's like us today. If we were trying to carve something on the wall, we wouldn't use Times Roman, which has those serifs. 
we'll, we'll use Helvetica, which has no serif. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. We would use that rather than all the five. <laughs> Y'all know what that means. <laughs> so there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They're all consonants. There are not any vowels in the Hebrew alphabet at all. Uh, so they can write Hebrew without you can you can write and and understand Hebrew without vowels. So if you go to Jerusalem and if you pick up a newspaper in Jerusalem, it's written in all consonants. There are no vowels. So Jewish people, Jews in Jerusalem and Israel, they can read Hebrew without vowels. They don't need the vowels. So that shows you Aramaic. That shows you that these Semitic languages are quite different. Everything, the meaning depends upon the consonants. Not so with Indo-European language. The vowels are vastly important. So in English, uh, you know, if we have a V and a T, well, that could be bat, that could be bet, that could be bit, you know, that could be but. There's a lot of different possibilities for what that word could mean. But not so in most Semitic languages. The B and the T are all going to be the same word mostly. One might be a participle, an adjective, a noun, but they're going to be related generally. So you can get the context pretty easy in uh, in Hebrew without those vowels. And so Jews read their Bible so that when, when the Bible was originally written, it was written without the vowels. Now I say on page 10 that eventually the Jews decided to add vowels. Um, they decided to add vowels and they added uh, vowels not they didn't they didn't add letters they didn't add vowel letters they added what are called vowel points so they didn't want to disturb the sacred now Troy's just shaking his head back there because he doesn't like these vowel points <laughs> terrible so uh, they didn't want to disturb the sacred text the sacred text as it was done. So they just made little notes uh, called vowel points. Some of them, are, Most of them are underneath or around the letters to add to the pronunciation, to give the full spelling of the word. Uh, as I say here, in 800, 8800, a group of Jewish scholars called the Masoretes, possibly from the word Masar to hand down, developed a system of vowels, signs, vowel points, that were added to the consonantal text. Hebrew is written from right to left. So if I've got an example here. You've got H and S, and that little straight line underneath is an A-class vowel. The pathet. So that's an A-class vowel. So H-A-S uh, would be how that would end. And then you can see uh, from your page there, um, these are different vowels. So you've got a short A-class vowel, a long A, E, a long E, an I, an O, just depending on where the vowel is at. Up here, down here, what the points are. These are called vowel points. So these are added in AD 800. These vowel points are not inspired. They weren't given by Moses. They weren't given by Malachi. These were added by Jewish scholars. So that, that accounts for sometimes different interpretations or different translations in the Old Testament. Because somebody might say, you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure they pointed that correctly. It could be this word. 
Now, we have great faith and we have a lot of trust in those Hebrew scribes because they are quite old. We believe they recorded, you know, correctly 99% of the time. But the vowel points are not what Moses wrote. They're not what Malachi wrote. And so that's the case. Here's Genesis 1-1 down there with the vowel points. So you've got Barashit, Barashit. So here's the preposition, in, and the dot is the the, and then the beginning. Barashit, Bara, God created. Here's the verb, and it's got two vowels here. God, Elohim. You heard Pastor talk about Elohim. There's Elohim with the, the vowels there, the vowel point there. Created and this little mark here, these, the F is a sign of the direct object. So you've got two direct objects. The heavens, Hashemayim, and that letter there is and, and then the earth, R. So today when we look at a Hebrew Bible, we have the vowel points there so we can read it and so forth. Okay. So don't forget, next time we're going to have a quiz. So. <laughs> Uh, Study points. this, huh? The vowel points. <laughs> Could be. You weren't here for the quiz, were you? Correct. No, I wasn't. We have to correctly pronounce the word. Exactly. Exactly. All right. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.